You're listening to Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for black women. This podcast is produced to help black women in leadership become more centered by silencing their inner critic and creating strategies to become more confident and innovative. I'm your host, ICF Certified Executive Leadership Coach, Joya Jefferson-Nuri. Welcome again to Unshackled Leadership. For those of you who follow this podcast, my newsletter, or have worked with me as a client in the coaching part of my life, know that I stress what I call sacred rest. I call it sacred rest because it is mandatory in our lives. You must put it on your calendar. It's not something you just squeeze in when you get a moment. It is a central part of how your chemistry works, your body, how your mind functions, and your ability to be creative and have the ability to move from your zone of excellence to your zone of genius. Today's guest has written a new book about this sacred rest and explains in full detail why Black women must have it. Marita Golden is an award-winning author with more than 20 books of fiction and nonfiction. Her books include some of my favorites, A Woman's Place, Saving Our Sons, and Don't Play in the Sun. Each of her books is a deep dive into being Black. Her books have been hailed by fellow Black women authors like Toni Morrison and Charlene Hunter-Gault. In 2021, she published a book called The Strong Black Woman and followed it up with The New Black Woman. Bloom Black Woman, please allow me to introduce you to Marita Golden, a woman I have known and respected for more than 30 years, and her work constantly inspires me. Welcome, Marita, to Unshackled Leadership. Hi, Joya. Thank you so much for this invitation, and you look marvelous. <laughs> the audience won't know that because this is audio only, but thank you. And so yes. do you. And so do you. I'm sorry we don't spend more time together. Maybe this will fix that. Sure. Okay? Everybody's too busy. Okay. So before we start to talk about the new black woman, your newest, your latest book, I want to talk about being a black woman. Throughout your career, you have written so many books that become the voice for black women and the things we face. And, you know, for me personally, Don't Play in the Sun resonates because I am a brown-skinned Black woman. And for those of you who are guessing what Don't Play in the Sun is about, (laughs) it should be obvious, okay? Can you give us some insight on what inspires you to write about Black people in the way that you do? Well, I think that my mission whether I'm writing fiction or nonfiction or pulling together an anthology is to complicate and enlarge the story of black people and black women. When we talk about black people so often, the larger story has been of our experience in this country and who we are has been written, defined, and codified by whites. And so like many black writers, I've set out to complicate, to textualize, to enlarge, and to add dimension 
to our story and our reality as I imagine it and our reality as I see it and want to comment on it. And as you know it as a black woman. Yes. And as you know it. Does this come from a childhood experience? How you knew that story, our story has to be told in a different way? Well, I grew up, I'm, I'm a 60s baby, you know, uh, the seminal event of my, probably my teenage years was, of course, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement, the black power movement. And so the redefinition of black history, black identity really shaped me in a very meaningful way. And coming of age, growing up, reading this generation of Black women writers, Maya Angelou, um, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, Toni Kate Bambara, who became mentors to me even before I realized that I was going to be a writer, um, they showed me the way. They showed me what writing could be, what Black writing could be and what I could possibly do as a, as a black woman writer. And so I saw them complicating, adding texture, adding nuance to our story. And I decided that's what I had to do, that there was no reason to write if I didn't do that. Adding texture and nuance. You know, this show is called Unshackled Leadership on Lantern for Black Women. And it's dedicated to Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. For her bravery to mm-hmm. take out with a you know go out with a lantern and a right and a gun to set those of us who wanted to be free free mm-hmm. yeah and it's to add that texture is so important. What I didn't mention in the introduction is that you're also the co-founder and president emeritus of the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Foundation. What brought you to that work? Beyond the fact that she's Zora Neale Hurston. (laughs) Well, bringing people together in communities, small or large, is part of my DNA. I find I have found myself throughout my life drawn to connecting with people to solve my own issues, whether it was starting a writer's group on my own or starting a single parents group. I really do believe profoundly in the power and necessity for connection and community. And when I was a college student, I was a, an activist on campus and did a lot of work in the D.C. community. Where did you go to college? I went to American University. And so I was in the community, you know, trying to solve, you know, some of the issues that were facing us and it still faces. And... Um, So when I realized that this writing thing was my calling and that I was going to be doing it as long as I could breathe, it became very important for me to connect with Black writers. And I was living in Boston, and that was a very difficult place to be Black. And I was so desperate, so so lonely, you know, for connection with Black writers. And when I came back to Washington, D.C., I immediately said, okay, this is Chocolate City. Well, it was Chocolate City then. And I set about really connecting with Black writers. First, I started the uh, 
African-American Writers Guild, which was a local organization that Clyde McIlvain and I started. We did conferences, um, networking, writing groups. And then around 1990, as this whole new renaissance of Black writing was starting, um, you know, all these Black women writers. And I said, okay, something's happening. Something's happening very important. And I was teaching an MFA program at George Mason. And so I said, well, well, I'll start with something small. So we started, I said, I'm going to name this organization for Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright, because I want to signal that this is an organization, this is a support mechanism for male and female Black writers. Um, Many people may not remember, but at that time, there was a vicious cultural war going on between Black men and Black women writers around the issue of feminism, around the issue of the way that Black men were presented in the writing of Black women. And I said, enough already. So I I named the organization for two writers, actually, who couldn't stand each other. Um, Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they were bitter cultural enemies. And yet over the years, as the organization, which is now 30 years old, uh, we did more and more work. I got to meet and work with both, well, the daughter of Richard Wright and the niece of Zora Hurston. And they were so glad that the organization was named for their ancestors because they were both very similar. I mean, Richard Wright's work was full of, you know, anger and showed the ways in which we had been to some extent uh, possibly and partially destroyed by Mm -hmm. our oppression. Absolutely. Hurston wrote about the ways in which we had enormous resilience and the ways in which we had survived intact. And so you really can't understand our experience in this country or in the world without reading both of them. And both I, of them, exactly, together. exactly. So uh, I'm very proud that the Zorinal Hurston Richard Wright Foundation is now uh, 33 years old. Congratulations. And uh, we're presenting the Hurston Wright Legacy Awards in October. Yeah. So anybody who wants to get information about that, go to hurstonwright.org. But this whole thing of connecting people is just something that I'm naturally always seeking to do. That leads us into your new book, The New Black Woman. And in the first chapter, it's entitled, Who We Used to Be. Can you explain what that chapter is and why you thought it had to be first? Well, I think that we are in the midst of a a cultural revolution, Black women, that is. We are a whole new Black woman in 2023. We are women who can say that we need rest, that we need help, that we want to seek out um, support from mental health professionals. No generation of Black women has had access to the information, has had the psychological and emotional freedom to speak about pain and vulnerability and their needs in the way that we can in 2023. And so when I was writing The Strong Black Woman, I realized that this is a a huge cultural shift that involves Black women of all ages, young, old, middle-aged, and it's really quite exciting. And so we are moving away more and more from that 
you know, you have to sacrifice yourself, put, put everybody first before yourself. You're the family fixer, the ATM. You don't have, you know, if you ask for help, that's a sign of weakness. We're moving away from that. And that's who we used to be. Some of us still are, but we're in transition. And so I wanted to acknowledge that we're moving away from that self-definition. And I'm so glad that, that I was able to live to see it and also be part of what I call an army of, of Black women and others who are really pushing this movement forward. You know, as you know, that in my executive coaching practice, I deal, my clients are all Black women in leadership. Mm-hmm. And just as you just said, one of the biggest problems they have is the taking off the Superman cape mm-hmm. because they have in their careers and education moved into a role of leadership, either in a company or their own companies, but they still carry all of that burden of, I must take care of mama, my sister and three cousins who didn't achieve on this level and all the guilt that comes with that. And that the ATM, they continue to be the ATM <laughs> and no matter what the, what the family needs. Like, I was the ATM this week. I'm the ATM next week. Okay. And in my coaching, we talk about setting those boundaries. And I'm finding as the agreeing with you, as the years go by, they're more willing to set those boundaries and don't feel that that is a level of abandonment or weakness when they set boundaries. And we're going to talk about boundaries later in our, in our conversation about boundaries in your book. So the first, so we are now who, who we used to be is now becoming very different for us. And I'm glad to see it. Do you think that that is a product of time, a cultural push, survival? I mean, why do you think we're different than we were X amount of years ago? Well, I mean, I think this is a, this is a lot, where we are now is the result of decades, everything from the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the women's movement, um, uh, Oprah Winfrey, for example. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Who, who made it legitimate to talk about our pain and our suffering, not only in our families, but for a national audience. So all of these various cultural shifts have created a space where women um, and more and more and more black women feel that they can challenge the received notions of womanhood in meaningful ways. And it's a lifetime project. It's not a weekend project. It's not go off to a conference or a retreat uh, project, which is why one of these, the, the subtitle of the new black woman is loves herself, has boundaries and heals every day. So that in the book, I talk about everyday practices, but I'm just excited that, that even women who never before would have acknowledged that they would like to, to change their attitude towards um, their obligations and their responsibilities now can at least say, how can I get started? Show me a roadmap. Yeah. You say soon after that chapter where you're talking about who we used to be, you have, I want to read you something from the book. I begin this book by writing about silence 
because I believe reconciliation with the beauty and power of our souls is the foundation for the good we do. So can you expand on that? Well, I started a meditation practice in my 20s, um, transcendental meditation. And my mother died when I was 21 of a stroke. And my father died when I was 23 of a heart attack. And it was quite naturally deeply difficult and traumatic, particularly because they had been so instrumental in giving me the confidence to become a writer. And they did not live to see me become the writer that they had told me I could become. That's and tragic. so I decided that I was going to make health a big part of my life, that I was going to live longer than they did. And so I developed healthy practices, meditation, um, walking, cardio, a, a kind of a spiritual practice, and connecting with people around positive activities, knowing that those would extend my physical well-being as well as my mental. And I wasn't afraid to go into therapy. I've been in therapy three or four different times. And it's interesting, I had a conversation with a therapist the other day, and I was telling her that usually when I go in, it's sort of like for a tune-up. I've, I've, she said, when you've had practices that ground you in acceptance of self. By the time you come to a therapist, you've done half the work. So she wasn't surprised that I said, well, I only needed to see her four times. She said, yeah, that's because you've done all the rest of the work. (laughs) You did all the rest of the work. I understand. I love that word tune up. Uh, I, I have a process in my coaching where clients can come away from that weekly and come in when they think they need it. And it's really, I hadn't used the word tune up around that, but the sacred rest, I talked about it in the beginning. Um, I find it and see, so silence, valuable. Just to go back to silence, because yeah. is the practice of silence. I've gone on silent retreats, spent time in silence for many, many years. Many of my biggest emotional challenges I've solved in silence. Because in silence, over the years, I've connected with my inner Marita. And my inner Marita is my best friend. She doesn't judge me. She listens to me. But she's my compass and my North Star. And by being silent, there's a process that's very mysterious, very incalculable, but very, very real in terms of shifting your energy, shifting uh, your possibilities, your dreams, your goals, your desires, just by being silent. Um, I think that we as black women come from a long tradition of prayer, for example. We're a praying people, a praying world, and we would not have survived without that. Right. And I'm all for prayer, but sometimes the issue with prayer is you're asking for something a better job, more money, a mate, love. Or you're you're beckoning the higher spirit to do something for you. right? And silence, just listening to your breathing, just listening to yourself, 
calms you physically and it calms you spiritually. And in that calm, other things rise up that you may not have even expected or known. So that my inner Marita is my best friend. And I met her just by being silent, not asking for anything, not wanting anything, but just creating a space where she could tell me what I need to know. You know, it's, it's the silence also means turning off the stimulation. And a lot of times we get into these situations, I don't care if it's work, personal, relationship, where stopping the brain from the stimulation, or we escape the stimulation by going to YouTube or Netflix. We escape, we escape the problem, rather, by going to YouTube or to Netflix. What is your advice for stopping all of that so you can get to silence? Well, one of the things about The New Black Woman is in the half of the book is inspiration, and the other half is guidance. So there's all these apps and podcasts and books and everything for people who want to get started. But I think that one of the challenges sometimes with with going into silence is that we may have untreated, unhealed trauma and wounds and deep fears that when we are silent, they rise up and that's all we can hear. But when I've talked to therapists about this, they recommend two things. Sometimes you may need, depending on the depth of the wound, you may need professional support in getting to that so you can get to silence. The other way is to demystify the idea of being silent. I think that when we think of being silent, oh, I have to go sit on a mountaintop. I have to go <laughs> yeah, get a yeah, retreat. Yeah. But actually- I need know, incense burning. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but you can be silent for two minutes. You can be quiet for two, and that's valid. That is no, that is no less valid than an hour. And so uh, I know sometimes I'll, I'll I, I do time for me workshops and um, around radical self care, and I will open with a five minute meditation and end with a five minute meditation. And people will often say, you know, before we started, I was really tense and nervous or I was about to have an asthma attack. And once we, when the <laughs> silence started breathing, all that went away. So I think that one of my favorite quotes in the book is um, Dr. Raquel Martin says, you should be your happy place. Yes. You're not looking out there for a happy place. That is, your mind is always with you. So your mind can be your happy place for five minutes. You know, it's not a race. It's not a, uh, it's not an accomplishment. It's not a career goal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Nobody's moving to Tibet. Okay. So one of the things I bring to my clients is guided meditation. And it starts the process and it goes, sometimes we do three minutes. Some of my, some of the homework is a 20 minute I am meditation, but they all tell me that the beauty of it is the silence that comes after That's the ability to quiet the mind enough, at least for that guided meditation. And then the silence will follow. So like Marita said, it doesn't matter. You know, you can always find that silence. It could be two minutes or it could be an hour. It could be whatever you want, but find something 
where you quiet it all down and relax your breathing and get in touch with your body. So to move on to the book, The New Black Woman, you know, what I loved about the book are the, one of, one of the things I loved about the book is the inspirational quotes that run throughout the book. And I found those very good. As a matter of fact, I took a picture of one and it's in my phone. Okay. But one of those quotes is from Audrey Lord. And I hope the audience knows about her and her writings. And she states, caring for yourself is not self-indulgence. It's self-preservation. Talk to me about that. Well, I'm using that quote as a foundation. I really do feel that if, if black women are not adopting a radical self-care practice that includes daily self-care, they are co-conspiring with all the forces that are out to destroy them. Um, systemic racism, we now know, I mean, Black people have always known this, but scientists and doctors are now writing papers about the fact that systemic racism is a stress factor in our bodies. It can almost be measured like blood pressure. And because it's such a perpetual reality, we have to have perpetual, consistent practices to meet it head on. And so it's really, really important that these practices become just daily, just woven into the fabric of your life. I mean, for example, exercise. I mean, if I don't exercise, my body craves it. I mean, I'm on automatic pilot, you know, got to exercise. Um, and if I'm not able to do my morning 20 minute meditation and then some affirmation work in the mornings, maybe I have a doctor's appointment, whatever, I do it later or I do it while I'm in the doctor's office waiting to be called. Yeah. So that these real, and I think that it's really important to acknowledge that on the one hand, I, I want us to be joy, joyous. I think so often we talk about the problems we have, but if we hadn't been a joyful people, if we had not celebrated ourselves, we could not have survived what we've been through. So I want us to be joyful and celebratory, but I also want us to be very protective of our health and very vigilant about it. This is very serious business. Um, I want to just take a minute here, for example, just to talk about the little different thing on um, the whole issue of maternal uh, health care, Black women dying so frequently in um, childbirth. And there's a yes. great film called Aftershock, which was produced by Spike Lee's wife and another documentary maker. And it's about this issue. And um, it's on Hulu. And it's an amazing film because it profiles the stories of these women who died, who had who died pre in preventable situations. But then it profiles the men who were the fathers of the children that died, that they lost, and, and the women, and how they formed a support group to support one another, how they became activists on this issue of Black female maternal health and built a a healthcare center in Brooklyn and lobbied Congress 
and the whole history of why black um, midwives were driven out of the industry, the birth industry. It's a great, great film. And actually the, the topic may sound very depressing, but the film is deeply inspiring. And it, the thing I like about it is it shows what you can do, not just this is a problem, but what you can do. So we have to really take our health very, very seriously. I mean, and we're part of a national, I mean, take the issue of obesity. I mean, we're just an obese nation. It's not just black women or black men. we're an obese nation. And so um, when Michelle Obama was first lady, she wanted us to eat healthy. Oh, that she got wanted, slapped down immediately. That got slapped down. How yeah. dare she tell us to eat exactly. locally grown vegetables? Exactly. <laughs> She's a communist. Exactly. <laughs> and so we have to really take our health in our own hands. So what yeah. I'm hearing is that the the stress in your life right now, black woman, is the stress in your life, but you're also carrying genetic things that come sure. back through enslavement and before. Mm -hmm. And that you're not just carrying the weight of your finances, your career, your kids, your husband, your mother, but you're carrying all this ancestral pain that needs to be healed. We mm -hmm. have to address it. What I'm also hearing is that it has to be a daily thing. Like I said earlier, it has to be something that's in your calendar. You have it early morning. And if it don't make it there, it just gets slide into something else. Mm -hmm. But it is a mandatory part of your existence and your joy. And I keep trying to tell people this for years. And I keep trying to tell myself this. Yeah. I, sure. I, did, I ignored my sacred rest because I'm launching a podcast. I'm doing this. I went to Arizona and saw my family. I did all of this. And Juneteenth weekend, my body said, get up if you want, but we're going to, we're mutiny. <laughs> <laughs> I went to bed on Friday night, Juneteenth weekend, and I got out of that bed on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I needed to sleep. I took two or three naps a day, mm -hmm. but I recognized that's great. I had ignored mm -hmm. my daily ritual saying I'm so busy. Mm -hmm. But now that I did that rest, I want to honor it by not getting that tired again. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, it was good that I had that space, but if I didn't have that space, I think I would have collapsed. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had yeah. three and kids, at least and you, all you this. heard your body. Many, many women are disconnected. They have a mind body disconnection. Yeah. So when they're in pain, they tell the pain to shut up. Yeah. They ignore it. You right. know, so that I've, I've done presentations from a strong black woman where women were just clearly disconnected from their pain, mm -hmm. felt guilt if mm -hmm. they felt pain. Of course. Of course, because we've been trained, not just as black women, but we live in a culture that says you must work 80 hours yes, a week. Yes. You must perform. And this is what performance looks like. And you take two weeks vacation once a year, but you're still on your cell phone. You still have to answer the email. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but you turning off. But what I'm observing is through things I read at that the people who invented that kind of drive, rich white men, don't want to do it anymore either. The, exactly. The, the yeah. Masters I mean, of the yeah. universe don't yes. want to do it anymore. Yes. Right. And this, right. this generation of young people yes. in the 20s, they're not doing it anymore. They're not going to do it. So it's, so the, the whole thing of not wanting to go back to the office, is it not, is it just, is it, I, I'm lazy. No, it's I want a life. 
Right. I want a right. life outside of the office. So exactly. all of this is really changing and we, we're part of the change. Yeah. That's is so important. This is a very important conversation. The book we're talking about is The New Black Woman by author Marita Golden. As she said, the subtitle is Loves The New Black Woman Loves Herself, Has Boundaries, and Heals Every Day. Boundaries. Talk to me about boundaries. The only way you're going to be this new black woman is that you have to have boundaries. Yeah, well, I mean, I was very good at, I have a strong no gene. So in some aspects of my life, I was very good at saying no. Saying no to what I didn't want to do and yes to what I thought was best for me. But in a very big aspect of my life, I did not set proper boundaries. And that was in terms of satisfying relationships with men. Um, I was always saying yes to relationships that did not satisfy me. Yeah. Yeah. I always said yes to that. And if I saw a relationship coming towards me that might satisfy, I said no to that. Now I had to go. To- <laughs> I had to have the complicated one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for all my success with saying no and setting boundaries in sort of the professional area of my life. I It took therapy. It took a very talented, compassionate, really skilled therapist mm-hmm. to help me understand yeah. why I was not setting boundaries against negative relationships. And that was a huge turning point so that I could say yes. Because of what I was saying no to really was happiness. Um, And I'll just speak frankly here. The death of my parents when I was so young uh, turned me upside down emotionally. How old were you? 21 and 23. And so what you do is you create a story to explain what happened. And the story I created subconsciously was that if I had been a good person, they wouldn't have died like that. If I'd been a good, if they'd really loved me, yeah. They would not have died back to back. And so while I was achieving much in my professional life and becoming the writer that they wanted me to be, um, because I didn't feel I deserved love, I set up, you know, a barrier against it and just got relationships that were very difficult, very complicated. And as I say, it took therapy for me to unpack that. So they're all, you know, setting boundaries is saying no, not just to, you know, I'm not staying late. Actually, because I'm the only unmarried person in the office, I'm not staying late. Yeah. As well as, no, I'm not going to bring you into my life. I can see you're full of red flags. <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> they're, they're hanging, they're hanging yes. off your suit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think that. And, and it, you know, it's so interesting. I was listening to another podcast um, recently and Carol Burnett was interviewed on it. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer said, would you, what, what advice would you go back and give your younger self? And she said a very interesting thing. She said, I wouldn't tell her anything because if I told her anything, 
I wouldn't be me. Mm. Oh, how, what wisdom. Isn't that deep? I mean, wow. All the challenges, all the stupid mistakes, all the errors, everything made me me. Yeah. And yeah. to go back and try to, you know, well, then don't do that. Don't do, you know, I'd be someone else. Right. And I like the me I am right now. And Carol Burnett is 90 years old, married to a man who's 23 years younger than her. And she's got all her faculties. So I said, I'm going to listen to them. <laughs> I just saw her on an award show. Yeah. And I thought, how old is she? So I Googled her age and I'm like, she's my hero. Okay. <laughs> she's still moving and grooving. And, okay. and, yeah. and, and that's why a lot of people say, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. Yeah. Because then I'd be somebody else. Yeah. And and I, I, I like Marita. Like that. Yes, yeah. she is. You know. But the boundary thing is, and, and I'm learning to set boundaries every day. I mean, just yesterday I had a conversation with my son. And he he I made a request and he didn't he didn't grant it. And I'm got off the and I'm fuming. And okay, so I, I said, chill, Marita. Chill. You don't have to carry that. Yeah. You can let that go. Right. You know, right. Right. Exactly. That's not war and peace. You You don't have to take on every battle. Exactly. You have to take on every battle. I'm the same way. I'm not, I'm not as old as Carol Burnett, but I'm old enough to say, no, I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's every day. And as long as you keep coming back and learning that lesson every day, you know, Okay. It gets peaceful. It yeah. gets peaceful. Yeah. It's, it's like I call the, you know, I'm helping my clients and me move from the zone of excellence to the zone of genius. And I, the zone of genius, depending zone of genius, no matter what writer you're talking to has a different definition. Mm-hmm. Mine is peace with yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Peace with yourself, peace with your decisions, the strength to have backbone, the strength to say no. The strength to stand up to the microaggressions that happen, mm-hmm. just call it out. Mm-hmm. Just call it out. Don't sit there and be wounded by it because you're mm-hmm. the only one in the room hurt. Hurt everybody. Spread it around. <laughs> okay? Tell everybody. Make everybody uncomfortable when you're uncomfortable. Now, you don't want to scream and holler and put your hands on your mm-hmm. hips, but you, you do want to make sure that that doesn't slip by and you're the only one being pecked to death by ducks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you speak up. You talked about your um, parents dying and the story you made up for yourself. And I find that, and I label it as your inner critic, that keeps making up these stories that belittle you Mm -hmm. and make you do things that are not to your highest good. Mm -hmm. And going through that, through the therapy, what do you think your therapist said that triggered I know it's probably a lot of things, but triggered your awareness of that inner critic talking and helped you to transition out of it. What do you think was said in that therapy, in those therapy sessions? I had no idea because that was, that was over 30 years ago, but I do know that one of the things that therapists do, and this is why you can't just go to your girlfriend because your girlfriend <laughs> You need somebody trained. Yes. Right, right. Therapists create a space where you feel safe looking at yourself. Mm-hmm. And 
asking questions that lead you to inner to your inner truth. Right. Um, and a session with a good therapist is like is like reading a good book, a really good book. You always say, "Oh my God, I never thought of that." Right. Boy, that's the same thing that I've been thinking. Shatters right. conventional wisdom. Yes. You know, introduces new ways of feeling about things that are just ordinary that you think you know. And so a good therapist is just allowing you and and the thing the great thing about therapy is with a good you feel like you did the work. A good therapist makes you feel like it wasn't that they waved a magic wand, but they help you do the work. And a good therapist and a good coach helps you build a toolbox mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by which you can go reach back into that toolbox and use when those voices come back mm -hmm. and they come back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's so much that we bury and, and through therapy, we're digging, we're digging and, and we're digging in a, in an environment with somebody who's holding us tenderly, who's not judging us, who's not criticizing us. Whereas if we do the digging alone, we're slapping each other, slapping right, our exactly. Throwing dirt I'm back in the, the exactly. back in the hole. Exactly. <laughs> Counterproductive. Yeah. And also, and also if we do it with our girlfriends, they have a vested interest in the outcome. Mm -hmm. So they may not ask the powerful question that may hurt you. A therapist, mm -hmm. good coach, will do that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how does this resonate with you? Mm -hmm. And it may be a very painful place to mm -hmm. take you, but you're in a safe place. Yeah. And I hope more Black women, the ones listening to this show, the ones out in the world, will understand that it's okay to go get professional help. Most of our jobs cover it in the healthcare mm -hmm. provided and or you make the personal investment so yeah and finding a good therapist is a journey every black woman therapist is not gonna meet your needs exactly a black woman therapist therapist can be culturally insensitive a black woman therapist can be um wrong and so um you have to look until you find the right person and, and you know when you found because right. they everything and, and resonates just perfect. I've had yeah. white therapists who've been enormously helpful to me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it doesn't really matter. You just need somebody who resonates with your soul, and also who will help you through a healing in a language you understand. Mm -hmm. And that's most yeah. important. Yeah. You know, you say in your book that you have to open your mouth. What do you say here? You say. You have to open your mouth and tell your story. Why is it so important for us to tell our story? It's interesting because right now in my work, in my, I do, I do a lot of workshops, writing workshops. And the typical person in my workshop is a black woman, uh, 45 plus professional, uh, sometimes retired, who wants to write about her life, wants, <laughs> wants to tell her story. And we're living, once again, just as we're living in an age where we can talk about our pain, our vulnerability, we're living in an age where everyone feels that their story does matter. And I think that the 
genre, for example, of memoir has been so important. You know, the cage bird sings that that quote that you just stated comes from Viola Davis's memoir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really important because it's connected to mental health. You know, who are you but your story? Who are you but your story? You, In fact, you're not a story. You're a continuing story, a right. continually evolving story. And if you're afraid of your story, if you're ashamed of your story, um, how can you be open and accepting of anybody else? And this is a society that still, you know, compartmentalizes us. You know, you can't, you've got to be in one box. Well, what if I want to be in two or three boxes? And so owning our story is a part of evolving as human beings. And this isn't a humanistic society. This is a capitalistic society. Mm-hmm. So this jury is at odds with pretty much everything. Okay. <laughs> everything we know. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk more about your writing workshops. People can join. People can get on your newsletter and find out the, the next set of courses you're taking. And we'll have that in the description and on the um, website for this podcast. But tell us what happens in your workshops. That was beautiful what you just said, but tell me more. Well, I'm a passionate and compassionate guide for writers through their possibilities. And so I love reading stories and I love working with people to gain mastery over how to tell their story. And so I teach fiction workshops, memoir workshops. Um, I do workshops around self-publishing, how to get an agent. And I have been so, I'm so honored when people will want to take a workshop with me and in that workshop will hand their story with all its pain and difficulty into the group and trust me and the group to help them figure out its meaning and how to make a beautiful thing of yeah, that. Yeah. And so I'm that kind of teacher. Um, right. I take it very, very seriously. And in fact, I'm doing the, the best, I think I'm doing the best teaching of my life. I taught in uh, white colleges for many years in their MFA creative writing programs. And as a black woman, for all of my publications and everything, I felt marginalized. And um, the teaching that I've been doing the last 20 years on my own, I have felt deeply um, respected, accepted. And um, at the center of my work. And so I I love teaching. I love what I do. I'm getting ready to start next week a six-week personal memoir workshop. Okay. And um, a number of the people who've come out of my workshops have been, have gotten published. In fact, a woman named Dean Watson, she got a- Oh, I love her. I love her poetry. Yeah. Well, she's written a memoir called Transplant about Mm -hmm. her journey through uh, kidney disease. Yes. And yes. it's a beautifully written book. And I worked with her for several years on that. And she came to my workshop. This was before COVID. And I said, okay, this is a book. She, she had, I think maybe a couple of pages, but I said, this, this clearly is a book. Mm-hmm. 
That's excellent. Excellent. Like I said, to learn about Marita's workshops will be in the description of this show on Spotify and Apple and on the website for Unshackled Leadership. Marita Golden, I am so happy you were here today. I, I really enjoy this, Julia. And this is such a great thing you're doing because Black women in leadership positions are, oh my God, they're the advanced people. They're on the front lines. Mm-hmm. On, it's so hard to be where they are, but it's really important that if they can find a way to stay there. We, I don't, we can't all leave the corporate world and start a business. We've got to, sometimes we've got to stay in those corporations and change them from the inside. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Our guest today, Marita Golden. If you have not read her books, they're all listed on Google. And I tell you, I'd love the woman's plays, Saving Our Sons, and Don't Play in the Sun. I've I've read most of everything you've written. Oh, that's great. Including the anthologies. Great, great. And I those are the three that that come back to me and, and touched my soul. Thank you for joining me here for this episode of Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for Black women. I hope you learn something here that will empower you. Now, if you want to reach me for individual coaching, you can find me on LinkedIn or at my website in the Public Eye Communications. And I invite you to subscribe to us. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or on YouTube. And please leave a comment. I would love to hear from you. I'm Joya Jefferson-Nuri. I'm an ICF certified executive leadership coach. Thanks for joining me.